Welcome to One More Time, a wind band podcast. I'm Mercedes Maglio, and today we're going to be talking about navigating the music field as a Black American and what that means for the challenges students and educators face in the U.S. and in the band world. Today's story was produced by Elizabeth Bieber, Mercedes Maglio, and James Ryan. Today, among other stories, Scott Schwartz, the director of the Sousa Archive and Center for American Music, will tell us about James Reese Europe, a Black American jazz bandleader and composer during the turn of the 20th century. James Reese Europe, for some of his friends, would call him the king of jazz. Europe is one of those extraordinary individuals whose musical career and um, life came to a short end. I think if he had lived longer, I think he would have achieved essentially the same level of recognition that a Duke Ellington received. Europe is, he's born in 1881 and um, essentially lives only until 1919. So, um, you know, a much shorter life than Ellington. He and two other musicians, I think U.B. Blake, a um, ragtime pianist, and um, Noble Sissel, um, singer, a jazz artist, um, came together um, largely through Europe. Um, and bringing them together essentially into Europe's cleft club orchestra. And of course, you notice we're using the term orchestra. I think it would be safer to call it a, a jazz band in New York. This is 1910. And essentially, um, America is at the height of essentially Sousa's music. But um, ragtime is starting to get everybody's attention. And Europe um, was a master musician, manager, and um, opportunist, um, not in a negative way, but just seeing the lay of land and recognizing how he could build on his desire to create a a respected um, ensemble that um, met the needs of essentially audiences of color. He was intrigued by the fact that um, white audience took an interest, um, but largely because it was new. It was exciting. Um, It had syncopations and it enabled people to begin to dance. Um, um, And as such, you know, he began to pull these musicians together to form his orchestra. And of course, U.B. Um, Blake, um, uh, who we know for his extraordinary piano skills, and Cecil for his, his, his texts and his singing, um, and really begin to um, pull things together. And so essentially, um, you know, he forms his, his orchestra in um, 1910. He, it's a Harlem 
um, ensemble. It's the Harlem Renaissance. Um, Harlem was the was a mecca of literary thought, um, uh, of uh, political thought, musical thought, dance thought. I mean, it was it was an extraordinary time frame of which James Reese was part of and was very much part of that excitement. So by 1912, he has the opportunity to play at Carnegie Hall and really um, essentially are ahead of who we normally associate as the first jazz musicians to play in Carnegie Hall. Of course, you've got Paul Whiteman's and George Gershwin's um, jazz performance, The Aeolian, um, in 1924. And then you have Benny Goodman's first jazz performance at Carnegie in 1938. So Europe is, is you know, at least two decades ahead of those other individuals. Um, and I think the um, the ensemble uh, was was exceptional. Um, we don't have you know there's there's not a lot of documentation. In fact, actually, there's very little documentation on, on James Reese, um, which is unfortunate. Um, you get write-ups, re short reviews. Of course, the reviews for his ensemble were fairly brief and contrite um, as opposed to other white ensembles. It's just that was the nature of um, journalism. Um, and so, um, you know, a very popular music ensemble um, for dancing. Um, and you know, he really begins to um, make a name for himself. He um, disbands the Clef Club Orchestra in 1916 and earns essentially a commission in the 15th National Guard Regiment, um, which formed in Harlem. And of course, this is as World War I is raging. And in fact, you know, when America gets involved with the war, you know, they enlist. Now, um, Europe was then ordered, all right, because the, his commanders clearly recognized that um, uh, James was a musician of exceptional talent, and each military unit needed to have a band, and it just made good sense that James Reese would form one. And ironically, many of the players of his Harlem Ensemble also enlisted. So he had a ready source of musicians uh, that he knew and that he knew could perform well. And as such, um, you know, it was quite an exciting ensemble and they did play. Now, the ironic thing is that we think of um, the ensemble that Reese led, and they were referred to eventually as the Harlem Hellfighters. They are sent to be directed by the French. When they weren't fighting, they were making music, and they, the French really liked American jazz. And um, they essentially 
are brought back to the United States and they are essentially one of the military bands to lead the returning soldiers who come back after the war and they are essentially leading those troops as they walk through the streets of New York being recognized for what they had done. Reese died on May 5th of 1919 because he was shot by one of his bandmen over an argument about pay. Um, we don't have a lot of details and there was almost nothing written up about it. You know, it made just a, a small blip in the obituaries. You know, um, you know, band leader killed by bandsmen over salary. Um, you know, a, a terrible consequence for what I would um, say is an individual whose ensemble and leadership were quite extraordinary. We, we don't know much about his upbringing, but, you know, he had musical training and a great interest, and more importantly, an ability. And um, it is, it's regrettable that a, a, a situation arose that took his life. I think, uh, as I said earlier, if he had lived a full life, he would have um, essentially um, had the same name recognition as um, Ellington or um, you know Charlie Parker or the many other great jazz musicians of For this edition of Two Minute Rehearsal Techniques, we have Dr. Erica Needlinger, Associate Professor and Conductor of the Wind Symphony at DePaul University. Previously, Dr. Needlinger served as Assistant Director of Bands at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, was a member of the band and music education faculty at The Ohio State University, and has also served as conductor of the Nebraska Wind Symphony. Hello, so I'm, I'm here to speak with you about the complete teaching cycle today, at least that's how I uh, refer to this concept. And I think one of the things that we sometimes forget as conductors and educators is that what we do in those moments of the rehearsal process is absolutely critical in changing the perception of the musicians in front of us. And until they're really able to hear a distinction between what you are asking for and what they are currently performing, the quality of what they're performing, uh, no change will happen. So the way I think of the complete teaching cycle is a four-step process. The first is the instruction itself. And uh, the instruction itself has to be very concise and highly specific, not too many instructions at once, which is sometimes a trap that we all fall into. Um, that's followed by oftentimes a model. It may or may not be necessary depending on the circumstances. The model can be yourself using your own voice, modeling a, an articulation, a rhythm, a style, do, 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 whatever uh, fits the situation. Or it could be asking a member of the ensemble to demonstrate if you feel that particular musician has done a really great job of what you're asking for. 
The third step is the evaluation. And this is when the ensemble is performing what you've asked and what you are doing in the midst of that time is comparing what you hear to your internal image. And your internal image comes from your score study and preparation. It's very critical. Um, and your listening in that moment is of the utmost importance in being able to make a good comparison. If the performance does not match, why and what are you going to do about it? Two really critical questions. This is followed by feedback. You want to be highly specific in your feedback to further the instruction. Feedback cannot just be the knee-jerk reaction of good. That's something that is, uh, again, so common to all of us. Don't worry about saying good unless they have actually reached the point of executing in such a way that is good. Instead, go back to those questions. Why does it not match? And what are you going to do about it? And make your feedback highly specific in the way your instruction was. Make your feedback related to that instruction. And when the feedback is uh, well related to the initial instruction in the first place, it becomes the next instruction. Therefore, you are in a four-step cycle again and again and again and again until you actually make a difference in what you have asked an ensemble to do. So for example, if you say, this needs to be more legato, it doesn't mean that the ensemble just immediately knows what that is. You might need to say, more legato, please. Do, 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 do. And then they perform and you're comparing and perhaps your feedback is, not connected enough yet. Can you make the back of the note bigger, connected to the start of the next note? And then they go again, and you're in that cycle overall until whatever you have been able to achieve through your feedback and through your specificity of what you're going to do about it actually reaches a point where you can say, good. The month of February is an incredibly important time to pause, reflect, and educate ourselves on the Black American experience. Specifically, we're diving into the wind band lens and how individuals of color encounter a much different experience in this industry. We offer these interviews to you so that in your own learning and unlearning, you apply these fantastic perspectives to your daily life year round. Today, we have the chance to hear from three different Black undergraduate students from the University of Illinois, as well as the Juilliard School. We'll also hear from Dr. Kelvin Jones, Assistant Director of Bands and the Director of the Marching Tigers at Louisiana State University. Sure, uh, my name is Kelvin Jones, currently Assistant Director of Bands and Director of the LSU Golden Band from Tigerland. Uh, just a quick backdrop about myself. I was born in Greenville, Mississippi, the Delta areas. A lot of people refer to it. Uh, my mother is an educator. My father is now a retired Marine. So growing up, we lived the whole military track. Uh, I've lived in Texas, California, North Carolina, Japan for like very, very brief amount of time. Uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana for the longest stint. Graduated high school in Hawaii. Um, from there, I went to Jackson State University in HBCU in Jackson, Mississippi, the I love. Uh, from there, uh, I 
taught for like as an assistant director at this small rural area for a couple of years. Uh, they got my master's degree at uh, LSU. Then from there, I had my own program taught high school in Louisiana in St. Francisville, Louisiana, school named West Feliciana High School. It's about 30 miles east of Baton Rouge. Then after a while from there, uh, came back to LSU for my doctorate. Uh, at that time, I was involved, had a TA ship with the band department and music ed. So I taught some music ed courses and I also um, handled things from a logistical side from the athletic bands and also the concert ensembles, um, everything in regards to the band department. I graduated and I was fortunate um, to earn a job uh, there at LSU as an assistant director um, and then worked our way up, if you will, to where I am now as the um, head director of the marching band. Hi, um, my name's Ivana. I'm going to be 23 in a couple of weeks, and I graduated in May of 2020 um, from the University of Illinois. And my previous experience within music was uh, being in concert bands, obviously of various levels, um, from about fifth grade to my senior year of high school. And then my experience uh, with doing marching bands started when I was in seventh grade, and that lasted up until uh, my final season, which was with the Marching Illini that ended in fall of 2019, my senior year. So my name is NGO McGrevious. I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm a violinist, and I am in my final year at Juilliard uh, for my undergrad. Hi, um, I'm Kayla Williams. I am from Tallahassee, Florida. I play the viola, and I'm a second year master's student at the Juilliard School. I actually started playing music um, in the church um, my my experience with classical music is kind of different for a lot of uh, people. The first people who introduced me to classical music were Black people. And so that was the face of classical music for me for my first few years um, until I joined my youth orchestra at age seven, when I uh, very quickly learned that <laughs> classical music does not actually look like that um, around uh, around this country. Um, so that was something I dealt with early growing up, um, definitely sticking out. But um, I have gotten really amazing opportunities playing different genres of music, which I really love and enjoy. I do know, um, coming from an HBCU, historically black college university, uh, people had certain perspectives, like coming out of my undergrad, it wasn't necessarily overtly stated, but it was this underwritten rule of, all right, if you have your degree from this school, you're teeping this kind of environment, uh, typically maybe urban or inner city perspective. Also with that, people would look at, oh, you went to an HBCU and so your, your musical worth may not be as highly valued as a person who came from a PWI, a predominantly white institution. So uh, my grandfather, who was a music educator in Mississippi, he just strongly encouraged me, even though I went to an HBCU from undergrad, try to go somewhere else, like a PWI for your master's, so you can have both perspectives in a roundabout way. 
um, add credibility to my musical experiences. Because in some respects, people will look at that HBCU experience as a devaluing of, well, yeah, you do band that one certain way, and that certain way may be the marching band. And even within there, there were certain perspectives and perceptions that it was not done, quote unquote, right. So um, so I, I remember all that to say, I remember when I was teaching uh, in Louisiana, and I would go to like the director meetings and such, I remember people would kind of look through me. Uh, I joke about it like being at Midwest, which is a big international conference, takes place in Chicago in December, where you talk to somebody. So they're talking to you, but they're looking over your shoulder to find that next big wig, so to speak. So that's kind of how I felt then of like, I'm talking to people. They, you can tell they're looking through me and not really talking to me. Or they had their own preconceptions of, here's this black guy. You know, we don't really know anything about him. So he's probably just trying to do band that kind of way or having their own perceptions of what I do. And I remember after my first year, well, during my first year, we, uh, we have, I'm pretty sure it's the same everywhere where you have like festival uh, music assessment. And we went there and my group made sweepstakes. And I remember, which is all ones. And I remember vividly some of the same people that wouldn't really give me the time of day were like now my best friends. Like, oh, Kelvin, my boy, you know, because I guess, you know, I achieved this certain moniker, you know, we made sweepstakes or whatever. And so that was like the roundabout validation versus kind of having that from the get go. I kind of had to, in a sense, prove myself, oh, he's not like what we thought or like other people that look like him that we perceive to be the case. You know, either they felt I was different or it just it gave me a different sense of credibility. So on some respects, it could be. I had to quote unquote prove myself, but in those same meetings, I saw, you know, Joe, you know, fill in the blank, Joe Blow didn't have any experience either. And it's people were clamoring over that person because they were from an LSU or from a school that they can identify with or relationship with. But, you know, being that I was the quote unquote outsider. And again, you know, I, I'm, I would be naive if I said if it wasn't because of the color of my skin, it automatically brought some different perceptions of things that, you know, fair or unfair, weren't justified. So a long way of me saying, just because a person may have a different background, obviously from race, but even educational background, they happen to be from an HBC, they don't mean that they can't teach their students, you know, lifelong lessons and musical responsibility and fundamentals and that sort, just because their approach to music may be different than what you have experienced. Or that just because, you know, X amount of people from that system may do band a certain way doesn't mean all people do band a certain that perspective that way. I think now overall in society, there's more of a heightened awareness of everybody's not everybody, but typically everybody has a blinder or their own biases, regardless of, you know, me being a black male. There are certain experiences that I'm not aware of that you know, a black female may go through or a white female or a white male or, you know, um, uh, Latina or so fill in the blank with, you know, your ethnicity, and your group. So everybody can only be aware of their own shortcomings and things that they're exposed to, but not turning it off to where, oh, that's a different perspective. I shut that down. Um, so we've been having a lot of more things where we've been doing within our program, some diversity training of even something as simple as like sexism people may say sexist comments and 
racist things and they don't realize that those comments are racist. For example, we had a student that told another student, oh, you speak well to be Asian, you know, not realizing that is a very racist term. You know, so it's just people have their own blinders and they don't know what they don't know. So at least for me is taking it from the standpoint of how can we create teachable moments? So people, when when our students go out in the workforce in the realm, they are aware of diversity and diverse experiences. Having people be aware of those things. Um, I, I'm lucky where in Baton Rouge, we have another great program at Southern University, which is an HBCU. And that director and I are really good friends. So we've talked about different kind of ways that we can possibly collaborate because there, not to go into a huge soliloquy here, but there are some divides within Baton Rouge. Um, if you're on one side of town, you believe in one system or another. And there's a whole long lineage of different um, racism and prejudices and things that have happened to kind of get to where we are. So there have been different conversations him and I have been having about how can we be more collaborative to show people, our students, but also our community that we are a lot more similar than we are different. You know, they may do band a certain way that's different from us, but, you know, you can argue that a lot of people love what they do. You know, heck, it's awesome. They have millions and millions of views on YouTube. You know, they performed at Presidential Inauguration, Super Bowls. So just because the majority of those students, you know, may be black doesn't mean that that's a devalued system. And I'm not saying people overtly say that, but there are just certain, you know, undertones of, oh, they have a concert band? I never knew that. You know, it's like, while you're not intending to be racist when you make that kind of comment, those have racist undertones, you know, if that makes sense. So just showing, you know, the world and, or our community, I should say, and our students, especially my students, that regardless of your background and all those things, we are a lot more alike than we are different. Um, so the biggest thing that I often noticed was a disconnect between me and oftentimes my band directors or other people of color, like my friends or peers uh, and our band directors. And the issue with that is that specifically uh, within the concert band world, it's dominated by white men. And even uh, times where you do have the occasional person of color or potentially a woman, they're they're not necessarily well-versed um, in terms of like what black students would want to get out of band or what type the music we would want to play so it just never seemed like things were quite lining up like you know i don't understand why we have to play four pieces from mozart when we only have four concerts a year like how come we can't throw in any black composers or how come we're not even learning about black composers you know like we always take this time to essentially learn like european music history you know when it comes to being classically trained and stuff uh you know in reference to concert band but it's just not a full experience of what the music world is and i feel like failing to um offer that to kids especially at a younger age you know for example when i was in middle and high school uh it can really deter black students from continuing on within music uh, as a career or as a hobby past their adolescence Thankfully, the high school that I came from was moderately diverse in terms of the student body composition. So throughout high school, I actually had a relatively positive experience where most of my friends were people of color. And um, obviously, being a band kid, most of my friends were in band. So thankfully, you know, my experience with adolescence led me to want to continue in college. However, when I arrived at college, specifically working with the Marching Illini, we have about 400 members or so. And if I had to guess, I would say that probably around three, probably 
probably like two to 300 of those members are just white men. And so it's not even a matter of necessarily feeling like I can't fit in, I guess, physically, like, obviously, I have the right skill level to be there. It's never been a question of that. But socially, it's just really hard. Because at least for me personally, like white men are the group that I relate to the least. And it is who I'm around the most uh, being at this university. And you know, this university is a uh, primarily white institution a PWI. So that was to be expected when I came here. However, I suppose that I just have more hope for people, you know, our age and around our generation that, you know, they won't make it a big deal about race or anything, or that if there is a big deal that needs to be made about race, then we could stand up and fight for that. But, um, you know, I don't feel like I've, I've had that uh, expressed here. And I also remember another instance where um, during my freshman year of college, which was in 2016, fall of 2016, um, this was around the time that Colin Kaepernick decided to kneel during the national anthem. We did something that unintentionally paralleled him. Uh, during my particular year, there was a miscommunication between who was deciding when the color guard would kneel and stand during um, the pregame section of the football game. And we had a miscommunication shared with us to where we were kneeling during the football game for um, about two months or so. I think the last game in October, the last or second to last game in October was uh, the, the first time where we started uh, standing up. We did a sight ripple in order to stand up. So we were no longer kneeling during the national anthem. But for all of the per, uh, pregame performances with the national anthem prior to that, in addition to all of the rehearsals, we were um, kneeling during it. And so it just felt really odd to me personally, as well as uh, some of my friends and peers who were within the section, that it was around the same time that the Colin Kaepernick situation was happening. And, you know, this was in reference to, quote unquote, supporting the troops and um, the Black Lives Matter movement. And we just felt kind of alienated in the situation just because we didn't really understand at all why we were being told to suddenly change something that we had been practicing for the majority of the time we'd been at band already, because, you know, it's mid-October by the time we're just getting this seemingly random change. But, you know, considering the um, climate surrounding just sports at that time with us being at a football game and also the racial tensions um, in the country with uh, Donald Trump being elected um, later on in the year. So it was just a very confusing situation for a lot of us and we just don't feel like um, the reasoning was communicated appropriately to us and we just felt very left out because we felt like if that was a decision that was made in reference to the Black Lives Matter movement or supporting the troops or anything like that, since we were the ones who were actually experiencing kneeling during the national anthem or not, that we should be involved in the decision making. Um, but obviously, this, again, as I said, was just a miscommunication. However, that doesn't change the fact that we still felt the way we felt at the time. And, you know, um, I don't feel like it was an act, obviously, at all of intentional racism. However, I do feel like it was unintentionally non-racist. And as we are trying to continue to better ourselves, not only for Black people, but other people of color and other marginalized groups, we do want to watch out for that stuff that is seemingly not blatant anymore. Yeah, definitely. I've had so many positive memories at Juilliard. I'm, I guess I can start with getting in. That was one of the best days of my life. It had been a dream of mine to go to the school since I was um, pretty young. And finally that day came and I remember my mom and I um, were in our kitchen um, 
and we just both fell on the ground and were like screaming and stuff when I opened the the acceptance letter on I think it was March 24th 2017 <laughs> I, I remember that date very well um so that was definitely a very positive experience for me um I've also just had so many great opportunities come out of Juilliard the Juilliard Orchestra has been such a great um uh, organization to be a part of um I've met my um chamber group there the Abeo Quartet we've been together since um the end of our freshman year up until now and we're going to be starting our grad school years together which is just so exciting and you know I met these guys at Juilliard and they're my family and I'm so excited that we get to make music together for a very long time I cannot speak for the years before me um but in terms of when I started in in uh, September 2017, um, up until this year, I have been the only, if not uh, one of few, maybe I've missed somebody, uh, the only African-American violinist specifically um, in this school up until this year, um, which is, you know, I mean, <laughs> I think that speaks for itself, you know. But I'm very proud to to be in this place. Um, I'm the only one in my studio. I'm the only African American girl in my studio. Lots of the times in my own in my classes, I'm the only one. And um, yeah, I just want to emph emphasize that um, I'm the only girl. There's there's been boys, and there's also been female violists, African American violists, Latin Latino Latina violists, and such. Um, so yeah. There's stuff ever since I was, um, you know, like six, seven years old um, in Boston. There's been microaggressions, which really aren't that micro um, uh, for me since then. <laughs> and I don't imagine them going away anytime soon. And um, that's just something I've had to live with um, being a person of color in this very huge arena of classical music that is so used to just their natural canon of not only music, but also like colors in the, in the orchestra colors in the, in just, you know, the stadium, that's just what it's been. Um, so uh, let's see, let's do some specific ones. Um, and these are not, these are not uh, at Juilliard actually these ones, but um, I remember I uh, was at a festival once a summer festival. It was, awesome festival. I really enjoyed being there. And this is only one example. This has happened in other places multiple times before. Um, but I remember I was in a chamber group. I worked so hard on my first violin part. I practiced it every day. I was so excited for this master class, working with a great master teacher. I just, I, I worked really hard. And um, after we performed and um, the audience, you know, applaud gave us some applause. Um, the teacher basically uh, spent the rest of our masterclass time making zero eye contact with me, acknowledging me not at all, not, not acknowledging me at all, and acknowledging purposefully, that's what it felt like, acknowledging everybody else in the group but me, saying, great job, you do, you should like do this differently or something. But I, I got absolutely nothing, not even a criticism really. And I was very offended by that because it just seemed like I was invisible to him and uh, to him or her. 
Um, and, you know, that did not feel very good, especially because I put in just as much work, if not more, because I was, you know, the leader in that scenario because I was first violinist than the other folks in my group. So that, that really, really hurt. And it's happened, like I said, on many other occasions. I went to a high school that was a middle school and an high school that was uh, both majority, um, majority, the majority was white people. Um, and so in orchestra, I was the only black kid. And, you know, I guess the, the questions that are always asked, how did you start? Or, you know, like, um, just trying to figure out how, how I quote unquote, got so good at the viola you never see people like me playing you know um and so this is something that you know it happens to me everywhere I go I get that question how did I get to be at this level how did I get to the Juilliard school you know and you know they don't see many black people like me who get there I would say um here at in, at Juilliard in Lincoln Center sometimes Oh, oh my gosh, I, I'm glad I just thought about this. Um, yeah, those moments happen all the time here. Um, it just happened to Anthony McGill, who is one of the most famous clarinet players. It's just, you know, when we walk into the concert hall, it's it's a, are we lost? Do we need help finding our seat? It's never, oh, can I help you backstage? Um, are you, what are you performing tonight, you know? So those are some things that, um, actually happens here in Lincoln Center quite a bit. You know, we kind of have to frown and say, I go here. I I am going to be on stage. <laughs> People have paid to come watch me play here. I'm not looking for anything. I can actually tell you uh, about the first time that I experienced um, racism in music. So I, like, I grew up in Florida, so I played a lot of fiddle music. And which I think has also contributed a lot to my classical music journey. And I remember I had just played and um, this this older white guy came up to me and he actually said, oh, oh wow, I've never seen an N-word play like that before. So that, <laughs> I know, it, I was, and I think this, this might've been in Dothan, Alabama or something like that. Um, and I think I had, I had to have been like less than 10 years old. And I was like, oh my gosh, I am, I, this, this is my reality, you know? So I kind of learned that a little early. Um, but yeah, that was my first moment with it. That's a really good one because a really good question and I don't have a this is number one thing you could do to fix it and everything would be great right you know but uh there are a multitude of things just off the top of my head like I know with equity is like with resources um you know as I mentioned earlier about LSU and Southern um there may have been things that happened way before I was on God's green earth that may have been systemic barriers that made resources more challenging for HBCUs as opposed to PWIs. Um, and I'm, LSU and Southern, I'm talking about in specific. So 
one thing I feel like maybe access to certain resources, you know, um, and I know this is an overgeneralization, but like, you know, with certain programs and instruments or with private lessons, that's more of a convoluted and complex um, perspective, but just having access to different resources can be one thing to, for lack of better terms, even the playing field. Um, even though I feel just overall HBCUs, like, you know, they have a great thing going in regards. And I say that because I'm a product of one where there's an entertainment value, you know, there's a crowd um, appeal, a passionate fan base. Whereas where I'm over a program now, we have some of those same things, but it's largely rooted through how our football team does, um, you know, in regards to just that innate passion. Like people love our band, but it's not like it's, it's, it's in addition to how well our team does. Maybe in a lot of respects to Illinois, you know, just from the histories, maybe before Lubby Smith, of people are coming to the game to see the band and then they're out, they're, out, they're leaving. <laughs> you know, um, we don't have that as much here, but that was definitely prevalent when I was in school at Jackson State where it was about the band and the team wins, that's Lanyap, that's cool, but the band is the main event. So, um there are a lot of, all to say, there are a lot of great things going in that regard, but I think just having more access to, like I said, resources and bigger picture of people to see value in what those programs do. Not having the elitist perspective of, yeah, that's them, but we're different. Like, there are a lot of great things we could take away from HBCUs in regards to marketing, branding, showmanship, entertainment. Like all of those things, I would think that any program would love to have with theirs. Like I would love for, um, you know, we do a pretty good job here at LSU, but to have that kind of perspective of the marketing of how like our colleagues down the street at Southern do, like that would be great. But for some people not to have that elitist perspective of, oh, mm, it's just them and that only works for them or that kind of thing. And then shutting off from more so being collaborative of how we can learn and work together with one another. Again, we may do things differently. How we run our program at LSU is different from Illinois, Ohio State, Michigan. Fill, you know, fill in the blank with any major program that doesn't devalue what they do. But at times, people try to devalue what HBCU programs do because they are different. And that's unfair. Exactly. Like, and I think that that's another problem is that um, specifically non-Black people continue to ask Black people as if we're your Google or your Bing or something, what should we do to fix your problem? And it's like, well, first of all, you need to go ahead and change them pronouns, sir, because it's not a your problem. Black problems are everybody's problems, just as Black history is everybody's history. Works the same way with, you know, Asian American people or Latina people or indigenous people. It works the same way. These problems are everybody's problems. It's just you have to acknowledge them as everybody's problems. And that's the biggest issue, because if you continue to just ask Black people, like, well, what are we going to do? What are we supposed to do? You're continuing to ask the same questions that we've been giving you answers to for years. You just continue to ask because you're not satisfied satisfied with the answer that we give you because it doesn't fit into your, you know, like hegemonic world of having whiteness be the standard and have it be like, you know, what's at the top of, you know, all the choices that we make or anything like that. So I don't know, you're right. You're holistically right. That question itself shouldn't even be a question. You should just know at this point. 
And you know what? I really hate the most is when non-black people are asking us, well, well, what's ever good enough? What's ever going to be enough for you? And it's like, realistically, nothing. Because the more we ask for, either the more you decide to take away or the more benefits you decide to give to a group who wasn't us. Like, just because, like, let's say, for example, during Black History Month, it's our birthday, right? In this particular case, let's just give that example. That's like giving you know, the first piece of cake to a different person at your own birthday party. Like, you should have the first one. It's your birthday, you know? And it's not even just during Black History Month, but it's like, anytime we need something or we want something, I feel like our people have endured enough in this country and still continue to endure way too much. I don't think it's too much to ask to include Black history in American history and stop separating the two as if they're different. This country was built on the backs of Black and Indigenous people. Like, there's no other way to put it. So I don't understand why we're separating those histories from what you know, U.S. history is. And that just, it just decreases the the general knowledge that people have available. It increases the likelihood for racism and microaggressions to occur because people don't understand. The more you realize, oh, hey, you know what? Maybe it's not just that Black people are quote unquote lazy, you know, with that stereotype. Or maybe it's not just that, you know, Black people want to fight all the time. Maybe they're angry about something that we did. Like, the more you learn, the more you're able to understand like why um, we're asking for the things that we're asking for. And again, I don't think it's that hard to ask for basic human rights and to be granted those. But for some reason in this country, it is. <laughs> and that's embarrassing. I know that Juilliard is trying to do that right now. Like I've been in two cycles that have showcased women um, and also people of color as you know, it's only one piece in the program at this point, at least the two that I've been in. But, you know, it's something, it's something. And, you know, I think that's a, a good, good step in the right direction. Um, I actually, I forgot to mention one, I'm just going back, a uh, microaggression, which is not that micro, um, that I just wanted to speak about. Um, when I was younger, I was playing at some concert or benefit concert of sorts. And I was with um, this person, an older white man who said um, to my mom that she should bow down at his feet for allowing me, you know, into his organization. Yeah, it's very wrong, very um, dehumanizing to say something like that. And, you know, it's really hard because I was super young back then. I was only... I was just starting to get some really great opportunities and it's hard. Like, do I say something and then risk my leaving this organization? You know, it's a serious conversation. And so we, you know, after I left, of course I wrote, we wrote like a long letter and had conversations, but during that time it was not the right move. And I'm, and I'm grateful that we didn't do that, but you know, at the same time, it was really hard to just kind of take it, but that's what you got to do sometimes, unfortunately. I will say there is, there is something that we can all do, which I, I'm a part of this amazing organization um, called the Volta Music Foundation. And what they're doing with their kids, um, with their beginners, their students are just starting. They're introducing them to music by POCs beginning from the very beginning 
that's how we can start. It starts at a young age. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know if we could just instill that, you know, there is way more culture in classical music than we've been made to think. Um, I think if we could just insert that into our youth's education from an early start, then we 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 have we will be covering a lot of ground, you know. So that's something that I've um, kind of found this this year um, is that we can do it with the repertoire that we teach our young kids. How do things become classics? They're played over and over again. So it's our job to make these pieces classics, which, yeah. And the more music we can bring, I can bring, my colleagues can bring out, um, yeah, I think that will definitely bring some color to music, to classical music. It is twofold, because if you look at history, um, just here in the South, you know, you had obviously, you know, um, you know, slavery, you know, hundreds of years ago. Then after that, you had segregation, civil rights, Jim Crow. So it was almost predetermined or predicated that the black programs, you do your own thing because white programs aren't they don't have that access to resources. They don't have that chain of collaboration it was you do your own thing because we're going to do ours it's like this separate but equal type of philosophy so just historically there's been this systemic build of we do our own thing and so whereas now and in recent times there's this push for collaboration but it's kind of that term changed by evolution not revolution because there are a lot of people who feel scorned of well you didn't want to give us access or when you did, it was like a poison pill, or you want me to conform to something that's not to our likeness. So there's this, you know, inner breed of yes, in, in regards to HBCU culture, like we do our thing, but it's our thing. You know, we don't want to dilute that or change it to be something that we aren't a part of or doing. So I I say that because I can understand where certain programs and certain directors or certain people may feel there may be some just based on history, uh, disingenuousness going on with that. So, all right, we can collaborate, but what's your MO? What's your motive? You know, even going back to unrelated, but like the Tuskegee experiment, you know, where they use black people as, you know, um, clinical trials for like these vaccines that was really injecting diseases in people so there is that kind of ideology involved of throughout history we've been systemically oppressed so why in the world do i want to try to be collaborative with people historically that have not had my best interest now i'm not saying that's the case now i think there is a whole lot more goodwill happening versus ill will but you still have those perspectives that have taken and happened over decades to try to then, you know, conform to a different perspective. So there is a two-sidedness to that of being aware of the historical ramifications while also trying to right the wrongs, but being inclusive and collaborative. But those things do take time.
I can't say that I've had, you know, um, off the top of my head. It's not that I've had every single experience in music be bad, but I just want to say that I can't think of something off the top of my head in which I had a positive experience in music in relation to me being black. And I think that that speaks enough for itself because, you know, if I don't feel like I can say, oh, well, you know, we had this really good lesson on, you know, black history composers and it's taught me a lot about, you know, um, you know, classical, uh, his- sorry, the, history of classical music in terms of uh, black history. But, you know, I also don't have anything to say like, oh, well, we did a, a show with primarily black artists and that was a great time and stuff like that. Like, I don't have really any of those memories. And I think that that itself is a pretty big statement. Um, I think it comes down to, I mean, it's, this is not an easy task, but it what has to be, it's what has to be done is, um, every individual has to do their homework. They have to read, educate themselves on um, uh, on unlearning on unlearning unconscious bias and such, and well, learning it, and then uh, like learning what exactly that is because it's unconscious for some people. Sometimes it's not obviously, but um, and then trying to fix that because that's a lot of what. Um, affects us day in, day out. Um, And we go back to what happened this summer with George Floyd and countless other names. And that is, quote unquote, unconscious bias to a max. And so, and and it happens to us every single day. So just working to um, unlearn that is extremely important. And I think that our institutions can help facilitate that, you know, but the problem with that is that it has to be facilitated by the right people. So like, you can't just hire like another like white woman to run the uh, the diverse diversity police program like like these crazy names like you you need people who are actually trained you need people of color for this sort of thing who understand what their students go through and or what their employees go through um to help facilitate these discussions and these seminars and such you can't just hire somebody who you know hasn't had this experience their whole life so i think that's extremely important um i also think that introducing um, uh, music by Black and POC compu- composers is key, and it needs to be a part of our canon, because right now, as I'm sure you know, like, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, like, all these guys, you know, they're, they're, they're who we focus on, Dvorak, they're who we focus on, but we forget about Chavaillet de St. George, we forget about George Walker, we don't learn about these composers, and that is a real shame, because there's lots of rich history that goes behind what they did, and, um, you know, and it's just a shame that that music is only resurfacing right now, because we had to get a few more people killed this summer it just that's really not what it should be like so i'm it was a wake-up call and a very very unfortunate shameful wake-up call but um i think that just needs to be a part that needs to be a part of the canon we got to make it normal for the young kids to uh hear about these composers the thing is (laughs) we live in a world where everyone is we it's it's all personal everything's personal and so I just, I'm encouraging my friends to really look outside of themselves, you know, and 
take a look at the bigger picture and listen to their friends, listen to their stories and don't invalidate, um, don't invalidate your POC friends because we're speaking truth here, you know, and it's been a long time coming, you know? Um, so I would just say, continue to educate yourself. They should continue to educate themselves, um, you know, and contribute to our community, you know? Thank you for listening to this episode of One More Time, a Wind Band podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to share it on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook, join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands, or find us on Twitter at Illinois bands. You can always check out our website for more information, www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producer of this episode is Dr. Anthony Messina. This episode was hosted and mixed by Mercedes Maglio. None of this would be possible without the Illinois Bands faculty, Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Elizabeth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We would like to thank Scott Schwartz, Dr. Erica Needlinger, Dr. Kelvin Jones, Ivana Owana, NGO Magrevious, and Kayla Williams for their contributions to this episode. We hope you'll join us for our next episode of One More Time, a Wind Band Podcast.